With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. Puts him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Tertio Times Radio. I'm your host, Josh Webb, once again, pleased to be joined by my partner in crime for this off-season the eternally late, the eternally I forgot to do something, Mister Mycin Adiasor. How you doing, man? <laughs> What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? Making yeah. a sweat before the show, Mycin. It's, it's the old age, you know. It's dude. It's all. It's always old age. I, I, I had I had an old age appointment today for my back, so I totally feel you. But today we got a good show, and we actually have stuff to talk about. And to do that, we have brought in from the Orange County Register, on the Rams beat, Mr. Ryan Karchi. Ryan, how you doing, man? First time talking to you, but uh, I, I, I know our tweets have crossed paths before. They have. I'm honored to be on the show, so glad I could finally carve out some time. Ah, Well, we are honored to have you on, and we'll just kind of go ahead and we'll get right to it. Um, Rams filled out their staff today. Uh, What are your first impressions of what you see from the 18 staff roster, 18-man roster, I guess? Uh, Well, I think it's pretty clear that Sean McVay's first you know order of business was obviously to get Wade Phillips on staff and then from there he clearly surrounded himself with guys that he trusts you know a lot of the guys he hired are you know people he worked with in Washington and has has you know just ran into uh over these past few years so pretty clear that he values that trust and I I don't necessarily think that's a good or a bad thing I think we'll have to wait to see but you know, in the end, the marquee guy is Wade Phillips, and I think you know everything after that was pretty much gravy in terms of putting the staff together. 
And that's kind of what I had thought, too. You know, it, it looked to me like the, the, the primary concern for McVeigh was getting a name in that would sort of assuage the hire with the fan base, if that makes sense. Like, the, the bringing in of Wade Phillips to the staff is going to make a lot of people happy, even if they weren't initially happy about, well, frankly, the, the, the hiring of the youngest head coach in NFL history. This has previously uh, gone down with a name that you and I both know, Mr. Lane Kiffin, and that didn't go over so well in Oakland. So there's a lot of that apprehension at first. Why is McVeigh different than Lane Kiffin? And tell me the many reasons. <laughs> uh, well, I can't see Sean McVay getting getting let go at the LAX uh, in a waiting room at LAX. So it just doesn't seem like he'd go down like that. So you start there. Uh, but I, I, they just have different attitudes. I think, you know, McVay is the kind of guy who can work a room. Um, you're not going to find many people who don't aren't, you know, somehow drawn to him. And I think Lane Kiffin was the opposite. Every room I was in with Lane Kiffin, I uh, never exactly felt like he was, you know, drawing people in to talk to him. So uh, there's a different personability, I think, with Sean McVay. And I think that's ultimately, you know, you can just tell being in the room with a guy, uh, you know, Kevin Demoff, I think, compared him to John Gruden in this way as well as many other ways. But in that, you know, when he's in a room and you hear him talking, every, everyone in that room is drawn to him. So, and I do agree. I think the one time that I was in a room, room with him, I felt the same. So, granted, that was his opening press conference. So, he's kind of the, the man of the hour. But, uh, still, I, I think he just has a better personality for this. Um, we're, it's still a long ways from us knowing whether, you know, the X's and O's work out. But he seems to have the that sort of personable way about him that I think I think it's going to go over pretty well in LA a lot better than Lane Kiffin did he he won the presser as we like to say in Los Angeles uh Mike said what you got man yeah you know I I personally I know I spoke about this last week and I I saw the Matt LaFleur at the time you know it wasn't official yet but I saw the hiring of him as the perfect idea for Sean McVay to, in order to not have to worry about that power struggle, um, to really be able to just go in, run the offense the way that he wants it run, um, having a guy with, with no experience calling plays or no experience as a big offensive coordinator even. What do you think, like, just when it's all said and done, like the underlying reason was that this was the best man for the job? Well, I think that's that's exactly right. I think, you know, it was pretty clear when Sean McVay said he was going to call the plays that, you know, their offensive coordinator wasn't going to be some marquee OC, you know, that everyone knows. I, I mean, I think you could argue that Greg Olson probably, you know, had more offensive coordinator credentials than Matt LaFleur Matt did. Now, it, I can imagine that room kind of being, a, you know, a, kind of a group instead of just one guy calling the shots. I, obviously, I think McVay will be the one who ends up, you know, being in charge. But, you know, with Lafleur and with Greg Olson, those are two guys that he's comfortable, you know, with their ideas and what they bring to the table. So I think in a lot of ways, I at this point, I think we can only 
good. I mean, these, these are a lot of guys who have some success uh, in their past. I mean, Lafleur these last few years, I mean, you're talking about the turnaround of Matt Ryan. He has something to do with that. You can give Kyle Shanahan as much credit as you want, but at the same time, he was there, so he was working with him, and he was also working with Kirk Cousins, too. So those, you know, in what terms the hell? of work with quarterbacks, it's only been good so far. So I, I am curious to see how that power structure plays out, but you know, they made it really clear he's going to be the guy calling plays, so you're never going to get a huge name. But, you know, LeFleur is a guy he's worked with, he's comfortable with. Uh, it seems like they should, you know, have that figured out beforehand. All right, guys, sorry to well, did you, cut in here real quick. Yeah, do you think that with – when you look at Wade Phillips being brought in and he's obviously the most experienced coach in the room, do you think that his hiring, you know, was probably the bigger focus, wasn't necessarily – how can you improve the defense or even keep the defense where it is, you know, rather than letting the defense regress? What do you think it was more so we have to have this guy here because he's probably going to be more of a uh, assistant head coach than just the defensive coordinator? I think it was both of those things. I mean, he's definitely going to be the assistant head coach in that way. I mean, the way they talked about him, you know, since – it, it, it was out there that he was going to be the DC. I mean, they made it pretty clear his, his voice is going to be pretty important in that room. So that's definitely a huge part of it. And like you said, and I think everyone reacted accordingly and you, know, you feel a little bit better when you have a guy like that, who I think, you know, he was however many years into his career before McVeigh was even born. So he's, uh, he's got a lot of experience on him. So I, I think, you know, at the same time, too, you don't want to let that defense regress because obviously at this point, you know, that's your selling point with this team. So you get a defensive coordinator who I would say obviously is better than Greg Williams. I mean, you upgraded at that point, you know, as as much as Greg Williams would like to think himself a genius, Wade Phillips has, you know, the, uh, the rings to prove it now. So, um, so yeah, I, I think in the end, it, it's kind of a little bit of both, but He's uh, he's going to bring a lot to this team. I think in the end, like I said, you can look at the rest of the staff and I don't know how much you can really break down like a wide receivers coach or a linebackers coach or whatnot, but you look at Wade Phillips, and I think that makes the whole staff right there. So definitely, uh, I don't think anyone should have any complaints at this point when you're talking about a guy, you know, that could have been a head coach somewhere, arguably. Um, it's going to be the defensive coordinator of a defense that, you know, should be a little bit better even than it was this past year. So do you actually feel like the defense will be better? Because the Rams, I mean, if you, you know, we went, my son and I went through last week, the, the number of free agents that the Rams are, are looking at uh, in various forms and we kind of talked about what we would prioritize, but we also think that there's no way a guy like Wade Phillips signs on to be the defensive coordinator of an organization kind of sitting where the Rams are unless he gets, you know, gets some give from the Rams, if that makes sense. So, what do you think Wade Phillips is going to do with the defense and how will he improve it from where it was last year? 
Well, I know there's there's a lot of concern about the fact that he's played a lot of three four, and you know how will the Rams fit into that? And I I do think that's going to be you know the main question. I I know they're having a meet and greet on Friday. I'm sure we'll be talking to Wade Phillips about that exact thing. We'll know more then, but. You know, there are a few key players on the defense. I think their role could change significantly. Uh, Robert Quinn, I feel like if he can stay healthy, might have a different role um, as more a, a pass rusher in the pure way, um, which I think is good ultimately for him. The guy who I have the biggest question mark about is Mark Barron. I'm not totally sure he fits into that, that scheme. Um, but with a guy like Aaron Donald, you know, that's – yeah, I think he's going to fit into any scheme. Wade Phillips is going to make that work. Uh, and he's probably, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a better season just because Wade Phillips knows how to put him in the right spots. But the biggest concern I would have, though, especially when you enter the offseason, is you know, Wade Phillips is a guy who relies on his corners a lot. Um, he's all about man coverage on the outside, especially. And, you know, that will work with Tremaine Johnson. I, I'm not – Vince, it'll work with EJ Gaines or Troy Hill or, you know, whomever else they'll plug from the practice squad at corner. Uh, I think you have to either draft a guy you think can start or pick someone up in free agency, and they're not going to be cheap. So, and, you know, at this point, it's not even guaranteed that Tremaine Johnson will come back. Although, you know, I think they they might have told Wade Phillips, hey, we're going to franchise this guy if we can't sign him. So, I can't imagine Wade Phillips would come here knowing he would have zero man cover corners uh, to run a system that is very reliant on that exact thing. So I would think they're going to make signing Tremaine Johnson a priority. Uh, I have to imagine they bring someone else in, whether it's via the draft or free agency, but they need to be able to rely on those corners if they really want to use Wade Phillips' system you know, as well as it can be used. Now, switching gears a little bit and moving into a report that came out today from Bleacher Report's Jason Cole, he said that there, well, for lack of being redundant, uh, there were reports that the receivers didn't respect Goff. Um, First of all, what do you make of this report? And second of all, as we kind of highlighted in, in our article on the subject, how much can we really glean from 30 seconds of information that, that, that has no context going one way or the next, uh, you know, for, for, you know, golf side of things of that day or, or whether or not, you know, something came up with that receiver who didn't show, you know, just various different sorts of things that usually play into these stories. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the Jason Cole special, right? The, the like one tweet or the 30 second video clip that can be interpreted in a million different ways. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I would read too much into it. That said, I wouldn't say that Jared Goff, you know, had a stranglehold on the receivers uh, last year. I don't, I don't think he, you know, completely fully held their attention. I don't, they didn't adore him or anything like that. Uh, so I guess if you want to read from that, you know, maybe they, they weren't too happy with him. I don't know. Um but I think it was, I don't, I think that's placing the blame in the wrong spot, regardless. Uh, ultimately, you know, Jared Goff didn't live up to expectations. And, 
you know, the receivers were probably annoyed by that in the same way that the offensive linemen were annoyed by that. And Todd Gurley was annoyed by that. That said, I, I don't know that any of them would specifically disrespect him. I mean, maybe that did happen uh, with him trying to throw with them and they didn't show up. Uh, I don't know, but I don't think we'll ever know either. So that is kind of one of those situations where you can, you can believe it or not. Um, but, you know, obviously something has to change between Goff and, and the receivers. And at this point, I, I, like, I don't see Kenny Britt coming back. Um, maybe that would happen, but you know, maybe it's a different injection of people into that receiver room. Another, you know, another season under Jared Goff's belt would, would help. But when you throw a guy out there over halfway into the season, you know, trying to get that chemistry on the fly is tough. So it's kind of a hard job for Jared Goff regardless. And he's not exactly like the most rah-rah guy. He's pretty monotone and, and chill. And he's less of the, you know, forceful leader that say like a Jameis Winston or, or someone like that would be. So I don't know if he was put in the right dis- position to command that respect that maybe he would have had if he was named the starter right away. Um, that said, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but at this point I would take that with a grain of salt, but, you know, maybe file it away and see if, you know, if, if something isn't right to start the season, maybe there is a deeper problem. You know, when I heard about the report, the thing that was most shocking to me, it wasn't necessarily that the receivers didn't have the faith in them. It was the fact that the uh, coaching staff or the former coaching staff was willing to admit that the receivers weren't that good. Um, and that to me is like a huge like red flag because you say to yourself, well, what exactly are they doing here with this team? You know, you know, you're, you know, your receivers aren't that good. And yet nothing was done really to improve it other than to give one of those receivers, you say that not that good, a huge contract extension with so many holes on this roster and, you know, receiver being one of them, how exactly can the Rams address this receiver position and where do they go, you know, without that first round pick and there's no marquee receiver in free agency other than Alshon Jeffrey, who probably won't be available. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly revolutionary to say that the the Rams receivers were bad last year, right? So I don't even know that these coaches were stepping that, you know, that far out of their bounds. But yeah, I mean, it was clear to everyone that the receiving core needs some work. I mean, you had Kenny Britt, who was pretty solid last year, um, will probably be gone. So that's, that makes it an even tougher sell. Uh, maybe Tavon Austin can, you know, change under a new coach. I don't know. But at this point, I don't see a situation in which that first draft pick isn't used on either, you know, an offensive lineman or a receiver. And namely in that, in the spot that the Rams are picking in, in terms of value, a receiver makes a ton of sense. Um, these last few years, good receivers have fallen either to the end of the first round or beginning of the second so, and this year, it's a it's a decently deep receiving class. So, I think you could find a Juju Smith-Schuster, you know, where the Rams are right now. And he's a guy, given the... We've the, talked about know, dearth, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we, given the dearth of talent on the receiver right now, I'm not so sure Juju Smith-Schuster doesn't step in as the number one receiver next year, if Kenny Britt is gone. 
So I, you know, someone like that, I feel like you got to have a guy who, you know, can can dependably make catches, especially if you're if you're not going to resign Britt, who's going to command a ton of money. I mean, at this point, uh, I just don't. I think it'd be cost prohibitive for the for the Rams to go after him. But you know, there's another guy like Kenny Stills. There was a report that uh, he might be interested in playing on the West Coast. Um, he's kind of a speed demon guy who will who will uh, catch D balls, you know, pretty frequently. So that's something that Kenny Britt did. Uh, maybe not as well because yeah, Jerry Goff is his quarterback, but you know, Kenny Stills is the guy who can play deep. He might be a little cheaper than someone like Deshaun Jackson. So, uh, you know, I, it'll be an interesting test of what less, a testament to what Les Snead thinks about this roster because he knows he's in a position where he has to make some moves or he's going to be on the chopping block himself even more so than last year. So I think we're going to see some kind of moves. They can, the Rams can't really stand pat like they did, you know, this past off season. So this is the second week in a row where Jared's Jared Goff's name comes up, and it's not necessarily in the most positive light uh, with the receivers not being too crazy about him. And then uh, last week, the report of Cal Shanahan not really having faith in him if he had gotten an interview and he was going to take the job. He had issues with Jared Goff. What what exactly is the what where where is everyone's thoughts really at with golf? Like, what is your thoughts like? How what how does it that people how does the people really feel about him? Um, and what do people think about him being the future of the franchise? You know, I think at this point the the party line is is just that it's going to take some time, and I don't know that anyone in the building is is making those. Are making those judgments right now. I mean, it's hard to say. You're right. The fact that they hired Sean McVay, who, you know, obviously was so young, and you know, maybe he wouldn't have gotten a coaching job otherwise. Uh, it makes it soften the blow of you know those potential reports of you know McDaniel's or Shanahan coming out to say we're not sure about Jared Goff. It, the Rams kind of saved themselves those reports, despite the fact that something came out about Shanahan. But um, you know. I think I think it'd be unfair to really judge him based on this past season, uh, especially because he does have a horrible offensive line and just really bad receivers at this point. Uh, that's why I just, you know, I have to think they make a concerted effort in the off season to improve those things so you can actually get a real look at Jared Goff. Uh, I do think that you know they'll be on alert this year. I. I know they're, <laughs> Greg Olson will be able to tell. I mean, he spent the last few years with Blake Bortles. Like, it's kind of the same thing. You eventually know if this guy's the guy. Uh, I think next year we'll, have, we'll definitely have a better idea whether the Rams you know, were to make a final decision next year remains to be seen. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still so torn because there are some things about him that, that you like. I think in the right system – you know, maybe his talent will show a little bit better. But it was clear from the beginning last year, and what I never understood was that you were putting a guy into a system that just did not match his skill set in the slightest. Uh, he was not a pro-style quarterback, and he went into the offense that had the, mo- had the least snaps from shotgun in the entire NFL. So I'm not surprised that he struggled. Uh, I do think it's going to be all about what Sean McVay decides to do in terms of how to deploy him. I think... He used a little bit more shotgun, more air raid concepts, 
kind of in the same way that Dallas brought along Dak Prescott pretty slowly. If the, if the Rams would have done that last year, I mean, we might be talking about a whole different quarterback. So, yeah, I think they're going to do a little bit more of that this year. We'll get a better picture earlier on. And then, you know, maybe by mid-season we can, we can tell, well, maybe this is the guy or maybe it isn't. So personnel changes typically happen in May. Uh, do we expect to add a president or football operations guys? I mean, when when can we expect the, the rest of this front office staff to be filled out? Are these duties that are going to be taken on by folks that are already there? Uh, you know, I think it'll trickle out over these next couple of months. I mean, we still got some time until, you know, OTAs and all that. So I'm sure after this initial surge of hiring they'll probably take a little bit of time but uh all that stuff will come probably more into focus in these next couple months so um that said i mean you know in la we we're not totally familiar with the football offseason so maybe there's something i don't even know maybe they'll hire them even earlier than that we'll see still getting our sea legs here for sure for sure and that's understandable uh Now, uh, let's see here. What's the last question we got here? Was it now that uh, LaFleur is likely to be OC, what type of offensive scheme should we expect? Are we going to see something similar to what McVeigh has? I mean, you've talked about this, too, in previous question with sort of dumbing down this offense uh, as, as a way to get the best out of Jared Goff. But also, if... if you sort of look at what they've done, who they've hired. It really does look like McVeigh is and the Rams as an organization are investing a boatload into the future success of Jared Goff. Will the offense reflect that? Yeah. I mean, I think the best, if, if someone wanted to compare you know, the offense, I would assume, will be used next year uh, to a, a team or a player that already exists. I would say just the the template that's there with Washington and Kirk Cousins is probably the one that Sean McVay will choose to follow just because, you know, in, in some ways, Kirk Cousins and Derek Goff are similar. Uh, you know, they, they both excel at, you know, throwing shorter uh, routes to the outside, especially – uh, Kirk Cousins' accuracy deep wasn't great. Neither is Jared Goff's, um, at least in his first season. So I imagine they'll probably look to take advantage of, of that stuff, which you know does match the personnel. Um, that's why I'll be curious to see if a guy like Deshaun Jackson doesn't come. Then you really start to be able to replicate what Washington was able to do with Cousins. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch but you know I think again it will be focused the offense will be focused on Todd Gurley I'm sure but in a lot different way <laughs> that maybe one that actually works um, I don't know that Rob Boris ever totally knew what he wanted out of the offense last year so I think it'll be a lot clearer pretty early on and like like you were saying like I said earlier you know I just think they're going to focus on uh, you know, doing things to help Jared succeed, which is what I never understood last year uh, with Jeff Fisher and Rob Boris and the Rams offense. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think they'll probably look to, you know, take his strengths and and manipulate the offense around that instead of forcing him into, you know, a, a square peg into a round hole, that sort of thing. Fair enough. Now, you know, I kind of want to get into maybe some of the guys that you think the Rams are going to target in the draft. Uh, mm-hmm. There are many different ways that this could go, and and there, depending on who you ask, you're going to get about a thousand different responses. Now, you already brought up one potential candidate, a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, who we actually projected, I think, and it wasn't in our first mock draft, Myson. Yeah, first mock yeah. draft was uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. Now, now, see, I feel like Juju could be there simply because USC receivers as of late seem to have fallen out of favor with NFL scouts. Um, Maybe the progression of guys like Nelson Aguilar, Marquise Lee, Robert Woods, etc. has been underwhelming uh, to executives, even though Marquis Lee quietly had a pretty good year last year. Uh, why is it that you feel like a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster could, could be there in the second round? Or do you think it's more so because there are so many wide receivers, it just somebody's got to fall, and he seems like the most likely candidate? Uh, I do think uh, there are some knocks against him. He's not going to test, you know, in the upper echelon with receivers at the combine. Uh, he's only six, two, which is weird. When you, when you are around him, he seems bigger than six, two. Whenever I read that, I, I thought that seemed way low, but, uh, and he's not the fastest guy either, but he has really sure hands. He can make catches in, in a crowd and, I think as a potential red zone threat, which they had none of last year, uh, even Ken- Kenny Britt, you know, given his size should have been pretty good in the red zone, but uh, not exactly. So I think, you know, he would offer that, which I think is the kind of guy you really need to balance, you know, with Tavon Austin. So I do think he is going to slip a little bit just because of that. And I do think, you know, at times he has underperformed at USC compared to his skill set. But there are times when I've watched games with him where he is just clearly the most talented uh, position player on their roster, which, you know, given how good USC looked this year, it tells you something. So I do think, you know, at the same time, too, like you said, there are a lot of wide receivers. So one of them is going to fall that is a first round caliber player to the Ram spot. So, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Juju or whether that is uh, Curtis Samuel. I know I've seen his name, you know, thrown around a little bit. Uh, you know, a guy like, uh, um, yeah, I, at receiver, there's, you know, I don't think Corey Davis, the likes of him, would, would really fall. But I do think there's a lot of talent there. Uh, could also see them going offensive line in that spot. So, you know, it's hard to say. There's so much time left for, you know, draft stocks to move. I almost feel bad throwing names out now because, you know, Juju might drop to the fourth round and wouldn't even. If I had to, you know, go to the pitch right now with, with my bet for who the Rams would take, I would think either Juju or another guy I really like 
who has an amazing name is Forrest Lamp, Western Kentucky's offensive tackle slash guard. Uh, he's a guy who could really help there. So, you know, it's got to be something to help Jared Goff. So that's just has to be the priority at this point. I, and I think you know, even if they drafted a cornerback there, I, if I'm a Rams fan, I'd be pissed personally. Yeah, I, uh, it, it's, I don't really know how you spend that pick, but I agree with you that it has to benefit Jared Goff in some way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think if you spend that pick defensively, it doesn't make much sense, although it would make sense in that I would wonder if that's what Wade Phillips wanted to become the D.C. I guess it would make <laughs> sense on that level. But I, I agree with you that it has to be beneficial to, to Jared Goff in some way. Now, see, I kind of look at a guy like Juju, and I agree with you. There are games when he was just the most physically dominant guy on the field. He took things over. But then there were also games that he massively underperformed. But mm-hmm. you also have the problem of, of, of Cody Kessler who had a Juju Smith-Schuster problem where they, you know, 46% of the offense was funneled through him. So in that sense, you're going to have plenty of film and, and plenty of, of, of route running to be able to study for Juju to know if this guy is going to be able to hack it at the next level. Now, for me, I think that he's one of the guys who's maybe a little bit more polished physically, and I think he has the skill set to become a very quality wide receiver in the NFL. But if you ask me, the best receiver on USC's roster, hands down, is Darius Rogers. Yes. There's a lot of talent on that roster. I, uh, I think I think we're going to see a few of those guys drafted. I meant at the wide receiver position. I'm sorry. Did I say entire roster? I I did not mean that. There that that's. <laughs> I, I meant the the best wide receiver that USC had this year was Darius Rogers, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think he projects the best to the NFL, which is something that Mison tends to agree with. Mison, why do you feel that way? You know, I just look at Darius Rogers, and I keep saying it but the second i started like watching his film the very first thing that came to my mind was in Bolton. you know very similar in size and build and style of play he's a sure-handed receiver like in my personal opinion i think that he has the best hands in this draft he catches the ball very well um and he's a solid route runner just just overall i think he's a good receiver from top to bottom is he going to blow you away with his speed no probably not you know but you're he's not a guy that's going to catch the ball and going to go down easy he's a very very tough tackle um i love the way that he finds the opening in zones he know he really understands how to sit it down like i said he catches the ball extremely well so when watching him i was just i came away so impressed and when watching juju I saw the potential, but I'm not a fan of potential. As I always say, potential gets coaches fired, whereas production gets extensions. Uh, And I see the potential with Juju, but I'm never really excited watching him. I'm always like, okay, what's going to happen? You know, so when I look at the two, for me, it's an easy call. I definitely have to say Darius Rodgers 
is the uh, better pro prospect, but um, it's Juju that has the higher ceiling. I, I, what I'm curious to see, you know, if they uh, if they do pass on a corner there, which I think corner is the obvious place to to go if they're going to go defense. But the reason I would pass on the second round is just because, you know, in the last 10 years, this might be the most stacked cornerback draft we've seen. Uh, yeah. I was just looking at a couple mock drafts while you guys were talking and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Michigan guy myself, so I gotta, I gotta rep my guy here. <laughs> but, uh, Jordan Lewis in the third round and uh, this mock draft I'm looking at right now is crazy to me. Um, I know he's a guy who's, who's, you know, a lot of people think might fall just because of his measurements, but you know, if you can get a guy like that, who's a <laughs> two time, First team All Big Ten player in the third round with that compensatory pick they'll likely get. I mean, that if you can get that and a wide receiver like Juju Smith-Schuster and two picks, I think that's that's something they can be pretty happy with. No, I agree with you one hundred percent on that. And um, when I posted my uh, big board uh, a couple of days ago. I said then, you know, this is the exact same words. I said, this is the deepest cornerback class I've seen in 10 years. It's ridiculously deep. I'm a strong believer that you can get a third, uh, you can get use a third round pick and get yourself a starter. Um, there's, there's a lot of, lot of good corners, but that also kind of makes me feel like because of that, just with the way that things usually go with the Rams, I know it's a completely different regime, but we do have the same front office for the most part, and let's need to still there. I'm, I'm really not 100% sold that the Rams go away from defense with that first pick. Um, it just seems like whenever there's a deep class, they go right into whatever it is that's deep early on as opposed to what, what may not be as deep. And, you know, you want to get it while you can, while the, you know, get it while the getting's good. You know, um, I think, I think that they'll probably, there's a very good chance that they do go defense. If they were to go defense, um, do you think they, do you think they go corner or do you think they go pass rusher? Um, I mean, you could make a convincing case that they could use another pass rusher, but, like I was saying earlier, with how much Wade Phillips relies on cornerbacks, especially man corners, it's I just don't think you can go into next season as the Rams and think that you have enough at cornerback. And that was, you know, even before they hired Wade Phillips, that group was decimated last year. And so many times, you know, you had to rely on Mike Jordan or Troy Hill, and you know they got burned on the outside and. You know how many games might be different if you know Janoris Jenkins was was there. I don't know, um, but at this point, you know I think if you're going to address anything, especially when you're not talking about like a first round pick where you're just going for talent, um, when you're trying to address need, I think you just have to add bodies there and try to get you know even if it ends up even if that person doesn't start, you know maybe to push a guy like EJ Gaines to, you know, regain the form that he had before, you know, last season. Uh, I just think you have to add to that group. And if you don't, you know, you're running the risk of having a great defense that can't stop any passing games. And, you know, even Wade Phillips, the reason why his defenses were so good is because they had, you know, in Denver, they had Aqib Tlaib and Chris Harris. I mean, these are two of the best man corners, maybe two of the top five man corners in the NFL. So, you know, those guys are important. You have to have those 
to be able to just rush four and and expect to be able to you know keep a passing game at bay long enough for your for your then stud front four that you think you already have if you're the Rams to let them you know get to the quarterback. So I just think quarter cornerback just makes the most sense. Um, that said, the Rams did a lot of things last year that make sense. So they could always surprise us. <laughs> yeah. So I I look at the the Rams current state and. I personally, I'm not a huge fan of like mocking and things like that before free agency because you really don't know mm-hmm. what holes are going to be filled. You know, so it seems kind of moot. Um, but when looking at the Rams, you know, current state and uh, what is going to be available in free agency so far, I mean, I look at the offensive line and I'm just like, wow, you know, the offensive play, offensive line are going to be so uh, stacked this free agency, um, just kind of across the board for the most part. And I, I have a hard time believing that, you know, with a little over $40 million in cap space uh, outside of Tremaine Johnson, who I know you mentioned earlier, you would think would be made a pr- priority to resign. Um, outside of Tremaine Johnson, there's really not too many guys that I think they are looking at as priorities. Even Tremaine Johnson, though, you know, th- that report came out where the uh, front office was looking at him, him and Kenny Britt as Jeff Fisher guys that they wanted to, you know, kind of let walk. Um, once you get past him, though, I think that they, I think that they probably let a let a guy, let a lot of guys walk, and in doing so, I think the attention has to go towards the offensive line. Um, it's a, it's the group that probably needs the most work, uh, considering that. They got both Jared Goff and Case Keenum and anyone else that was willing to line up back there killed last year. And it just has not been a good unit at all for the past seven or eight years now. There has, it hasn't really been an even decent unit. Um, considering that there's so much talent uh, that's going to be available in, through free agency, uh, who, do you, who do you see uh, that's going to be available that could possibly come in and be a good fit and really help improve this unit? Uh, well... See, I'm not totally convinced that the offensive line class is that deep. Uh, I know a guy like T.J. Lang at guard who would be great. Uh, If they could sign T.J. Lang, that would be a huge signing. Um, That said, you know, I I haven't read it from the Packers' perspective, but it would be hard for me to believe that they would let him go, just given, you know, I think he's been a a handful of Pro Bowls. I know Kevin Zeitler, another guy from the Bengals, guard, uh, could be great. Uh, still, you know, when you have these younger offensive linemen, you probably don't want to let them hit free agency. And it seems like people are starting to realize that. You have teams like the Cowboys and, you know, the Steelers and, and teams like that that have, are really investing in their offensive line, and it's working. So, you know, unless you're the Seahawks, you know, most of the time you, you think it's probably worth keeping those guys around. Um, but yeah, you know, in the secondary, it's a little bit more questionable. Uh, I agree. There aren't a ton of cornerback prospects. Now, what would be really interesting is if, say, the Chiefs, for some reason, screwed up and weren't able to re-sign Eric Berry. Uh, then things get really interesting. I don't think that'll be the case. Again, I, you just don't let you know top three players at their position walk away like that. Uh, but yeah, like you were saying, it, it's tough to really know yet, uh, how they're going to do this, but, you know, I think, you know, maybe even a tackle, you know, 
if you sign a, a veteran guy, maybe like an Andrew Whitworth that could come in for a year or two to start at left tackle just to help Jared Goff kind of get off the ground uh, and to take Greg Robinson just away from his blind side, uh, maybe that would help. I don't know. Um, that said, you're going to have to pay for a guy like that. So I don't know if that's a, a great way to use your salary cap space. Um, but it seems like if they were going to, I do agree that if they were going to address one of those positions in free agency, it'd probably be the offensive line. Just because when you're talking about corners and marquee safeties, those guys are expensive. So that's going to take up pretty much all of their cap space uh, if they try to sign Jermaine Johnson too, which I know that report was out there about them thinking about getting rid of him because he's a Jeff Fisher guy. I have a hard time believing that just because, you know, I saw when Tremaine Johnson was playing at his best, you know, he can be a top 10 corner, top 15 corner. So uh, I just think there's no way that they let him walk. And if they do, I think they're making a huge mistake. I hear you. I thought the same thing with Janoris last year, but Fooled me. <laughs> they let him go. <laughs> yeah, I think they'd take back that decision now if they could. Yeah, no. Yeah, kidding, I would man. I would definitely feel so. <laughs> Yo, real what quick would, though, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask you hope? just I'll, I'll ask you just one question though, real quick. I know you mentioned earlier um you don't think Mark Barron is a good fit, and I agree with you one hundred percent. Um I certainly don't think he was worth the forty five million dollars. Uh, as a, you know, an uh, outside linebacker, safety hybrid, whatever you want to call him. Um, I just d- didn't see him being worth $9 million a year, which puts him Before amongst the best paid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, puts him amongst the highest paid at his position. I don't think to be the highest paid, you have to be one of the best. I don't think he is. Um, so when you look at him now with this system change, um, he's definitely not a good fit. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, you can just move him back to safety. Well, he played safety, and that was the reason he got moved down. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a, a lot of success there. Uh, he, he didn't really do too well in that role. Um, with Mark Barron, what, what do the Rams do with him? Because with that number that I mentioned, that $9 million a year, no team is really going to, uh, take the take him off of their hands, and again, he hasn't played to a good enough level. He's a better player since being moved down. That's true, one hundred percent. I won't deny him that, but he's not good enough for any team to say, "Oh yeah, I'll take on that cap hit and bring a man." And you obviously can't just let him go because of the money that's invested. So, what happens with Mark Barron? How do you how do you make this work with him? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think only Wade Phillips can answer that at this point, but they definitely have to add another linebacker. Um, I would imagine you do that through free agency because, I mean, you basically operated with two linebackers last year for most of the year uh, after the Akeem Ayers release, uh, which still to this day seems kind of weird to me. But, uh, you know, ultimately I think – in a lot of ways, you're going to have to trust Wade Phillips. He knew that he was coming into a situation with Mark Barron, so, and he willingly took the job. So whether he considers that to be a weakness or not, I don't know. But, you know, it, it wouldn't be the first time that, you know, one of those hybrid guys can succeed in a, in a system like that. I mean, there are ways – we're turning so much more towards positionless football that I just – 
think that you can make it work if you do it the right way. Um, and he could be, you know, a, a guy who operates in a similar role to what he did last year. Now he wasn't great last year, but, and maybe he didn't live up to his contract, but you know, he also was passable at the very least. So, um, they're not going to, you know, the, they're pot committed now, like you said, so they're not going to give up on him. Anything you hear about him, you know, leading through this off season is going to be, yes, he has a place on this defense. We'll make it work for him. Uh, and at this point, you know, without seeing anything otherwise, you kind of have to trust them on that, but definitely be watching closely when, you know, the season rolls around. Sorry about that. No, fair enough. And, before we get you out of here, like we do with everyone, we uh, we like to put a gun to their head and ask them a couple of questions. So sure. the last question I'm going to ask you here is how much better are the Rams going to be in 2017? Because I, I don't care what the NFL draft says by virtue of record no team was worse last year in the nfl than the rams not the 49ers who beat the rams twice they're only two damn wins <laughs> not the cleveland browns who won a single game nay it was the los angeles rams who occupy the lone spot for being the crappiest product I put eyes on in 2017. So tell me it's going to get better. Oh, tell us how you really feel, huh? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, I mean, it is going to get better just because they can't really get worse, right? <laughs> so I do think that, you know, I, I agree with you, actually. I think that a few of their wins, you know, even of the four, were lucky. And they probably didn't deserve to win two of them, at least. Uh, but I do think, you know, when you inject just new blood into that coaching staff, you change the schemes to match your talent a little bit better. You put people in charge who you'd like to think have a better idea of what they're doing. Um I do think they're going to improve. Uh, that said, I don't, I thought I'd seen something about them, you know, some sort of ESPN prediction or something about them winning nine or 10 games. Uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I do think, you know, maybe they could win seven in, in a great season. Maybe they win eight. Uh, that said, you know, there were a lot of fundamental issues going on, most notably Jared Goff, but, if you do, I mean, I guess that prediction is assuming that Jared Goff kind of has a breakout season. And if that does happen, you know, maybe you are talking about a lot better team. But I just think there are so many holes, offensive line, receiver, cornerback, um, you know, pass rush, depth. Um, so at that point, there are too many unanswered questions for me to say that there will be any better than, than seven wins next year at this point. But, you know, and I said that at the beginning of this year, though. So who knows? It, it could go downhill from here, definitely. So I, I just think I, I have to think they're going to be aggressive or as aggressive as they can be in terms of, you know, finding some guys who, you know, will improve the talent level on offense, especially. Uh, and if that's the case, I they have to go get a little bit better, at least. 
Yeah, see, I think seven wins. I think fans would happily take seven to nine bullshit next year. I think they would. <laughs> I, I just, I think that fans would consider that an improvement. And I want to be clear. See, I, I get to do this from the lovely perspective of being like, I think, the lone TST writer who's not a Rams fan. Like, I actually get to look at this thing as a journalist because yeah i i i I, to me when i say they were bad last year like there were games where i'm like i I don't know if this is worth it like i i legit said that to myself like i just i don't know if this is worth it this team's so awful uh it just it, it it wasn't so much like I think the I think the peak for me was Miami. Watching that Miami loss. Like I think that entire loss for me encapsulated the Jeff Fisher era that I watched and read about. I I think just at a base level, getting rid of Jeff Fisher will make fans happier this season. Uh whether yeah. the team is actually better, I think just watching games will be a more enjoyable experience. Uh, I, that's a pretty low bar to set, I guess. But but at um, the same time, it's so high. Like that's that's the thing is it's the low bar. Like Rams fans are cool with low bars at this point. Like they just <laughs> they just they just want it to be something that satisfies the soul. And I think that having Jeff Fisher gone is something that people can not just get behind, but they can feel it deep within their being well that's what's that's what's interesting about the chargers kind of just kind of you know this is the chargers are a lot more interesting team to watch see they are i think this is a year for them i I want to get your opinion on this because we talked about this and now see right now the chargers the chargers are facing an uphill battle in that los angeles is very much a raiders Basically, everything in California, north of San Diego, is is Raiders town. Mm-hmm. Uh, if yeah. if it only because if we're being real, the Hispanic population does gravitate toward the Raiders in California, and they have Oakland to Los Angeles from their time both in. Oakland and Los Angeles, so it's it's really damn hard to compete with that. Like it's it's really hard. So San Diego is fighting an uphill battle in that they're a division rival. So it's not that they're just not liked; they're actually hated. Now. The thing about it is, though, is that people are about ready to give up on the Raiders because the Raiders are the Raiders and they're never going to stop being the Raiders. So you have people who would be willing to watch another NFL team. However, the Chargers, all they have to do is win more games this year. And I think that they could swoop up on some of that population that's chilling waiting to decide which in which direction they're going to go. Yeah, I'm a little bit more optimistic about it, I feel like, than some people are, just because, you know, if I think if the Rams roster was, say, the, the Chargers had the Rams roster and then moved here in the situation 
that they're in now and played like the Rams did last season, uh, that would be a disaster. Um, but you're talking about a team that has a Pro Bowl quarterback in Philip Rivers, uh, running back who, you know, as much as Todd Gurley was better than Melvin Gordon in their first year, Melvin Gordon was significantly better last year. Uh, the Chargers have a defense that, you know, last year they weren't great, but that has something to do with the fact that six of their player, their starting defenders were on injured reserves by the end of the season. So when half your defense is out for the whole year, it's kind of hard to look good on that side of the ball. But you know, I just think that, you know, there is, there are enough people. I do think that for now, you know, the chargers are going to have fans. They're not going to have as many as the Rams just because there is this ingrained group of Rams fans who remember, you know, pre-1994 and still have positive feelings about them. So I don't know that the Chargers are going to surpass the Rams in fans unless they were to, you know, go on some amazing run and or go to a Super Bowl or something like that. Uh, but I do think that I would feel better about the Chargers winning 10, chances of the Chargers winning 10 games next year than the Rams winning 10 games. So... If you're a random fan who doesn't have a specific allegiance and you like winners, you like want to watch do. winning football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and you know, Anthony Lynn, I was at his press conference. You know, he's a guy you can get behind too. I he's got the Chargers or the both. Rams were were going to hire. That there was the report going around that McVay wanted to hire Phillips and Anthony Lynn. And then the report came out that he had hired Wade Phillips. And I actually think that that I think that forced the Chargers hand, to be honest with you. Granted, if you're Anthony Lynn, though, and you're offered a job to be a head coach versus an offensive coordinator that doesn't call plays, I do think, you know, it makes a lot more sense to go to the Chargers. But I I think at some point that was real. I, I don't think that was a totally made up scenario by any means. So. You know, a I, I, I dream think that now. the Chargers made that offer in part because the Wade Phillips thing happened. And it's sort of not that the Chargers weren't going to make that offer anyhow. I just I, I think that with Wade Phillips being hired after that report had already come out, all of a sudden you're looking at this going, OK, well, if we don't hire this guy, because the Chargers internally already knew what was what at, at a certain point. They had to. I mean, yeah. they, they already knew they were going to move to Los Angeles. So if you don't get this guy, you're going to be essentially, in a way, competing against him for the next however many years these young minds are, are now in place. So... I do think there was – it wasn't – I don't want to say a reactionary hire because I think that places too much of an emphasis on, on what the Rams did. But I, I just think that the one report plus the hire of Wade Phillips may have had the San Diego Chargers go, you know what? We like this guy enough. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. I don't know. I hey, it is a fight all. for L.A., according to the Chargers. It is. It's a fight. Actually, it's a fight for law because they don't know how to use periods. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least they realized that their uh, logo game 
was was on. So. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, okay. So let's let's take five seconds before we let you go. Let's talk about how bad that logo is, dude. All right, which which was worse slash better, the logo or the Tampa Bay Lightning's response? Uh, the just the general sports world strolling of of the Chargers was amazing. It's one of the days, few days I can look at Twitter and be like, I'm glad you exist. Right? So it, uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty funny how quickly they backed off of that. I mean, it just, if you, if you don't want to be the sort of little brother franchise in town, uh, it's not, that's not a good look. To start. <laughs> but you know, then the crazy thing is I actually, I recently wrote a story about the 1960, LA Chargers yeah. they played there and uh, really awesome had a story. really cool logo the old logo was very cool they could have just went back to that but they yeah. decided not to so if if you've not got the chance I urge you I actually retweeted it so I know it's on my timeline but 160,000 tweets is way too much so just go to <laughs> Ryan's timeline I'll get him to retweet it after this show is over. So it'll be on there somewhere and you can find it. But it was a really, really awesome story about that one season that the Chargers did yet have here in Los Angeles. It's worth a read, even if you are a Rams fan, because NFL history like that's really cool. You know, it's one year. It goes to that's the type of crap that Ken Burns includes in his documentary and spends an entire two hours on. Yeah, well, at least the the Rams can be can be happy that they didn't have as few of fans as the LA Chargers team did. Uh, their their worst game, they had less than ten thousand fans, and that was the day they clinched the AFL Western Division title. So the Rams can feel pretty good about their about that Falcons game, I guess, in in context with that. I I just think it's going to be so. I I like. What the Chargers did, I know a lot of people hate it, but I think playing in StubHub Center is brilliant for for a couple of reasons. The first of which is they know they're not going to have the fan base to to fill out uh, a regular NFL stadium. So sharing with either the Chargers or, say, using the Rose Bowl, which, oh, God, that would be such a horrendously bad idea for for the Chargers. Words cannot begin to express how bad of an idea that would be. Um, but yeah, the, I, th- I think the Sub Center will be cool. I uh, I'm again, I feel like I'm in the minority, but uh, I just I, I like I it think, too. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, we're, uh, I feel like we're three of the few then. It's you know, it's. I think the idea is cool as long as the Chargers set the ticket prices right, and that's one thing. Uh, you look at what the Rams did; they did that re- exceedingly well mm-hmm. this year. Is that they they made the tickets affordable enough that they can get fans who you know probably won't be able to afford tickets in 2019. Uh, you can at least give them a chance to see the team. Uh, the Chargers are definitely going to have to do the same thing. So. But we'll see. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting season next year. I also see, I think fans who've never spent time in a soccer stadium with the with the awning style are really actually going to appreciate it. 
until the sun is staring in your eyes, and then you're going to be like, this is bullshit. But for the for the entire period where you don't have to worry about the sun, it's the greatest thing in the entire world. I, I Soccer stadiums are amazing. Um, but... Um, but I, what I was going to say is that I, I think that the, the, the capacity is really what is going to give them not the advantage, but a boost. Just in that they're not trying to fill out as many seats as their competitors will be. And the overall size of the stadium will make the smaller crowds look larger than they are. And if you've never been to the StubHub Center, the construction of it and the way that it funnels noise can really be used as an advantage. Um, and I These think are all things they're hoping for, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, all right. So before we get you out of here, what I do want to give you the opportunity to do is talk about anything that you may have coming up, any pieces that you're working on, or just in general, some stuff that, uh, that you expect uh, to uh, throw up on the website uh, here in the next couple of days. Well, with football season over, it's a little bit of a, a slow time, but I'll definitely you know, be writing some stuff about the, the assistants that we'll get to meet here on Friday. So things should be coming to a little bit more focus then. But you know, for this next month, it's going to be uh, I'll be bouncing around. So we'll see. I, I'm toying around with some NFL ideas. So well, uh, it's also going to be interesting. We're we're not totally sure how things are going to work in terms of covering the Chargers. So I know Jack and I want to continue our Inside the Rams podcast, but it uh, they, they might take him away from me. So I don't know. We'll see. Well, if they do, we will make a, uh, a, a permanent little home for you here that you can come on anytime <laughs> you wish and, and vent or discuss the Rams, man. But, uh, well, I appreciate that. It's honestly been a pleasure. I it, always wanted to meet you. I am sure that uh, we have seen each other and and not even realized it probably a dozen times. So <laughs> it's it's a pleasure to finally actually get to talk to you. And your insight has been tremendous. So I am sure fans will appreciate it. Great, thanks, and and thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. We would love to have you back too, as the season uh, starts to, I guess you could say, build itself up and uh, get, getting ready for the brand new NFL season. Just moments after we ended the previous one, although there is with, no off season in the NFL, so with, no days although, off. With the ending of the last one, I can see why people are ready for the next one. Because I'll tell you what, man, I I didn't watch the game. I uh, I I don't I I I just been so off put by the by the couple of the last Super Bowls with the Denver one and and. And the Seattle crushing Denver. Not that I, I didn't kind of enjoy that one because there was a lot of USC success in there and Malcolm Smitty winning MVP. It's, you know, um, 
but uh, uh, yeah, I I just for some reason decided I'm going to skip this one. And then I felt really good about it when I saw the score. And then I came back and I was like, the, the Patriots did what? And now I was pissed off and I had to set it to go back and set to record on my view. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad I got to go back and watch it. And I'm sad that I missed it in real time because that was apparently amazing. It is going to be a while before we get real football again. So savor it while you can. Indeed, I will, man. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will love to have you back here on Turf Show Times, man. Great. Thanks again, guys. All right. You have a good one. All right. right. Thanks. Bye. All right, brother. So I think uh, I think that about leaves us with so very little to talk about other than the Super Bowl. So let's just do like quick five minutes. Like now, what do you think? What do you think of that, man? Like. (laughs) <laughs> who, who, who does this who does this fall on you know the Super Bowl was so interesting because I think that when you look at how the uh, Falcons got the lead um, it really wasn't a terrible shock at least not to me that they um, that they ultimately lost the game because coming into the game I didn't think the Falcons was the better team and during the game the game, I didn't think they were the better team. Uh, when you look at the way they got the lead, they really got two touchdowns off of two turnovers. You know, the LeGarrette Blunt, Blunt fumble, um, they recovered it, and they went down and scored. Huge momentum change, and then the, then the pick six. Um, you take away those two turnovers, and this is a completely different game. Um, and I think it's hard for people to, to, to really grasp that. But more than anything else, the Falcons stayed true to who they were. You know, they they wanted to try to sling it as much as possible. The problem is they did they got crushed in time of possession. The the Patriots ran ninety three plays. Let that sink in. <laughs> you know, ninety three plays. Um, they, the, they absolutely crushed them in time of possession, and it wasn't even close. And that's even with having the two turnovers. They had more turnovers than the Falcons did giving them extra possessions, yet they still had the uh, a massive they were, uh, lead. They were dominating them in time of possession when I saw it. Because like, I, I remember watching the game, and I was looking. It was like right around the second half, right about that eight-minute mark in the third quarter. Yeah. And they were showing the time of possession. The Patriots had something like 30-odd minutes, and the Falcons had something like 18. And I'm like, dude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> time of possession was a massacre. <laughs> it wasn't even close. And I think that people people forget who the Patriots are. Um, they are a team that can beat you in so many different ways, but they're bread and butter. Now, don't don't get me wrong when I say they're bread and butter. Like I said, they can beat you in a lot of different ways. They're good in a, in every aspect. They have games where they can absolutely run it down your throat for 300 yards. They have games where they're just going to throw it deep. But their bread and butter is the short passing game, not the short and intermediate. They have mastered the short passing game. And that is really an extension of the run. Um, 
So while they while you look at Garrett Blunt and you look at Deion Lewis, you look at all the running backs, you say, okay, these guys didn't really have a lot of yards running the ball. There wasn't a lot of success running the ball. The success of the of the of the short passing game really is an extension of that, and that's how they were able to have the time possession that they had. Now that you look at the Falcons, and like I said, the, their lead was really built off of two turnovers. Without those two turnovers, this is a completely different game. And everyone says, oh, well, you know, they, uh, Kyle Shanahan, why wasn't he running the ball? Why wasn't he? The first thing that came to my mind, on the other hand, was he did it the exact same thing in every other game where he where they had a lead. When they played the Rams and they blew the Rams out of the water, they did not start running the ball. <laughs> they were still throwing the ball in the fourth quarter. You look even in the, even in the playoffs, you know, most, most times you'd say, oh, well, they're probably going to take their foot off the gas because they've got this game locked up and the Super Bowl is next against the Packers in the NFC Championship game. In the fourth quarter, they were letting it rip. <laughs> it wasn't even close to stopping. They stayed true to who they were. Um, so I don't think that uh, I don't think that they that people should look at it and say, oh, well, why didn't they run the ball? Because nobody was saying that when they were blowing teams out of the water and succeeding with still throwing it. I agree the with difference. you. I saw, I saw <laughs> that, and I was like, "Why? this is stupid. We always talk about how teams get away from their identity, and that's what cost them. The Falcons stayed true to their identity. Look, man, sometimes things come down to a coin toss. Look, if the Falcons truly were the best team in the NFC, which they were, and the Patriots were the truly the best team in – excuse me, the Falcons were the best team in the NFC. They were. The Patriots were the best team in the AFC. They were. Look, yeah. then you would assume that each of them could score 28 points in a regular four quarters, you know? Yes, except one issue. The Falcons could not without those turnovers, and that's why I keep mentioning them. Um the Patriots played some sloppy ball in the first quarter. It's just that simple. It was some, it, uh, Blunt rode the damn bench too. Yeah, you know James White got a lot of tick after that after that uh, first quarter fumble by Legarrette Blunt. Yeah, and Bill that's Belichick just doesn't give a damn. It doesn't care. Yeah, if it's the he football. doesn't. It take care of the football, or I will find somebody who will. Now, here's the one thing about the Patriots that I always, always respect and I always talk about. And you got to give this credit to Bill Belichick because no matter who his assistants are, no matter who his coordinators are, it's the same thing every year. And that's the ability to adjust at halftime. Um, When you look at the Falcons, like I said, they stay true to who they are. But when you play the Patriots, that's probably not the smartest thing in the world because they know exactly who you are. If they if they don't know who you are when they come into the game, they're going to know for sure by halftime, okay? And they make those adjustments. You kind of have to be, even if it's working for you, you still have to tweak it and make adjustments because you're playing the Patriots. Some, most teams, not some teams, most teams, you can continue doing what you're doing and you're just going to dominate them because you're just that good at it. But... Not with the Patriots. They figure out a way to. Uh, they figure out a way to make it work. Figure out a way to stop you. And like I said, it's not like the Falcons was really moving the balls that well uh, prior to the uh, prior to halftime. Because again, one of the touchdowns was a, a pick six, and the other one came off of the fumble return or the fumble, and uh, it was just all momentum at that point. 
But when you come out of halftime against the Patriots, you have to uh, you have to kind of throw some curveballs, you know, maybe even reach into your bag of trick plays, whatever it takes, especially on the stage of the Super Bowl. You got to do whatever you can to get that win. And you're going against the team that probably has the best strategists and all of that's probably the best strategists in all of sports and Bill Belichick. Uh, you know, so. I, I definitely, I definitely respect the fact that they stayed true to who they were, and I don't look at it and say, "Oh, they should have done this because they this, what they did in this game, they did all year, and no one complained once." <laughs> you know, it got them to where they are. They they yeah. became the number one offense because they stayed true to who they were. The yeah. Patriots <laughs> just happened to be the, the Patriot way just happens to be more successful than than the Falcon way. And, exactly. Oh, well, excuse me. Then what were they calling it? The resistance or what? Whatever the hell it was. Whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the Patriot way is just better than than what the Falcons had in store. And and look, man, when you got Tom Brady going up against Matt Ryan. Look, as good as Matt Ryan is, Tom Terrific is is in a different class. And uh, the Patriots put on just an absolute clinic in integrity. That's going to sound awkward. People are going to be like, all right, I'm done. Click. But look, <laughs> man, they put on a clinic in, 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 in integrity in this game in that they they refuse to get down. They refuse to to look yes. away. They refuse to be defeated. They refuse to but to to give in, man. To just but that give all in. goes back to that all goes back to Brady and Belichick. Like they are not two people who are going to give up. You know, yeah. I I for one had the Patriots pick to win this game. Um, I looked at it and I said, the, the, you got the top defense going against the top offense. The past couple of Super Bowls, that's been the case. And the defense has won every single time. Uh, the, uh, the top defense has won every single time. And then you look at the fact that they had Tom Brady, who I don't care what the score is. The guy has ice in his veins. He's the real Matty Ice. You know, he, he, did, he just doesn't give up. You know, he, you, I don't think that it's possible to get him to believe the game is over before the clock strikes zero, and then and the same thing with Belichick. So, I was I was definitely on the fence when they were up twenty eight three. I'm like, okay, you what's know, happening? Did, <laughs> did, did you happen to notice? Was it just me? But when Atlanta was going to pump right before the Pats took a knee to take it to overtime, did mm-hmm. you happen to notice that Bill Belichick was calling for a fair catch, saying like, hey, if you can get that fair catch? Because Belichick knows damn well about the rule that you can get an unabated drop kick uh, to, to uh, it, on a fair catch off, off a punt. No, I did not notice he was. I did not notice he was yelling for the uh, fair. Uh, it, looked, fair it looked like he was, and I could be hallucinating here, but it seriously looked like he was shouting out to somebody like, "Hey, if it's you know, if you can, and it's it, you know, fair catch, and if it's within range, you know, like say it's a crappy punt, he just gets off a crap punt, and the Pats get it around the 40, 44 or whatever." Call for that unabated free cat, uh, free kick off the uh, off the fair catch, and you you have a way to win the game. There was an article earlier talking about 
you know what you know uh it was leading up to the super bowl it was talking about odd rules in the nfl did you know this odd rule which i actually did know that rule but it's like the oddest rule in the nfl and they're like yeah. well, belichick knows it and i had read that article and that's why i was like wait a minute like he knows about that damn rule. So if he Yeah, he did it before. Yeah. <laughs> he did it before a couple of years ago. That was how I found out about it. He actually did it in a game and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. But I had never heard of such a rule before. Yeah, so I thought that he was at the end of the Super Bowl saying, Hey man, if we get a, a crappy enough punt here, signal for that fair catch so we can go ahead and uh yeah we can win this game without them even be able to do anything about it obviously that didn't happen but it yeah. would have been a belichick type thing and then just winning the coin toss man dude that's kind of what happens i honestly think yeah. that if the falcons would have won the toss that they had probably gone down there and scored two i'm not sold on that because I just don't believe the Falcons. I think the Falcons might have actually at that point, yeah. I might. Re- I, I still think that they could have, but I will concede the fact that at that point, the Falcons probably were a little bit shell-shocked. Yeah. Absolutely. I 100% agree there. I think that they were looking like, what the hell? How are we still playing right now? <laughs> you know, I actually um, I, I, I said that, I look at the score at 28-3, and then here it is, overtime. And I said, I guarantee, (laughs) and I put this out on social media, all the social media outlets. I said, I guarantee somewhere in Atlanta, and no one can argue with me on this, somewhere in Atlanta, in the third quarter, the the, the Falcons are up 28-3, and there's a bar owner somewhere in Atlanta that says, drinks are on us, guys. They're going to (laughs) win. I guarantee it. Yeah. The confidence was that high. I have no doubt on my somewhere in Atlanta. There was at least one bar owner that said it. And I think that's kind of how the Falcons felt too. And then when they lost, you know, when well, not even when they lost, but when they came back and they ended up going to overtime, I think they were shocked. Like like most people in the world. And to to that's a deflating feeling like man did we really let they are really feeling it right now we might lose this game that thought starts to creep in your mind because you see how they're playing you're seeing the miracle catches it's like everything is going their way as if it's meant for them to win this game it's a deflating feeling i'm not so sure and again it's not like they were really killing it before that they had a streak there where i think it was um like five punts and a, f- a fumble. They where they, were, they, damn, they, they hadn't done a damn thing in the They didn't game. do anything. You know, really? even before even before they tied the game, they didn't do anything. You know, and that's why I say the difference in this game was really two turnovers. Um, and so, and both turnovers was the Patriots moving the ball. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like they were yeah. uh, like like they were just getting shut down and turned the ball over. The Falcons defense was playing so great that was not the case. And the everyone says, oh well, you know, and uh, Devontae Freeman. This is what he averaged for the game. He was averaging like six yards a carry or seven yards a carry or something like that. Well, I'll I'll actually go against the grain and say he had a thirty-seven yard run. Okay, (laughs) he had 77 total yards, I think, or something like that, Uh, 76, somewhere around there. But he had a 37 yard run. Half of his yardage came from one run. Okay, outside of that one run, he didn't do jack. There was a lot of tackles for loss. 
a lot. And that's why I say I, I don't look at the game and say that the Falcons really came out and did much of anything. You know, they couldn't hold on to the ball. They were doing a lot of punting, and they weren't getting the running game going. Julio Jones was four catches on four targets, so he did his job, but they didn't throw the ball to him a lot. They only threw it to him four times. Granted, I think Matt Ryan had 23 pass attempts because they didn't have the possession, but when they did have it, they were really doubling Julio a lot, you know, really trying to take him away, and four targets is essentially taking him away. Now, the the he was 4-4, and he had 87 yards, so it looks like he wasn't taken away because he's a freak, but... He only had four targets. It was, I'm pretty sure Matt Ryan wanted to let the ball go his way more often, but they were really all over him. So when you look at what the Patriots did in this game, I mean, while the, while the score doesn't reflect it, the Patriots really dominated this game. And it's really, really impressive because to come back from such a huge deficit into, you know, no one's ever done it before. It's it's weird because it's not often where you can say that a team came back from a deficit like this while also dominating the game. And that's that's what this that's what's so odd about this this Super Bowl is because the Patriots really were dominating the game when you really look at uh, the overall perspective of things. Yeah, no, it's that's I 100 percent agree, man. Um from what I saw when, you know, outside of those turnovers, it was it was a lot of Patriots moving the ball and a lot of Falcons doing nothing. I mean, there were several plays in there where, you you know, you had uh, big plays like that one run by Freeman uh, or or like that catch by Julio, which. Oh, is, that catch was. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> It was, it was catch, very impressive. That catch was up there with San Antonio Holmes's, yeah. but it wasn't in the end zone. So yeah. Uh, what's up? You know, it's funny because we saw one freak in Julio Jones in the game, but I keep asking everyone, what what would this game had looked like with a Gronk? Mm, right. I, I don't think it was really factored that in. Gronk did not play. <laughs> like, yeah, what does this game look like with him? Like, my, I, I don't. I, they, it might have been a forty to ten game, honestly, because yeah. he's such a game changer. And I don't believe anyone on that Falcons defense can guard a Gronk. I don't think anyone can even slow him down. No one in the NFL can guard him, but you can slow him down. I don't think that defense can slow him down. The you know, Gronk, Gronk reminds me of Shaq. The only thing that can slow him down are his own injuries. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I, I, I really, I mean, I wasn't shocked the Patriots won. I was shocked that they were able to string together the amount of points and the amount of time that they did. Yeah, that's considering how far they, they were down. But again, when you look at the facts that they really did dominate the game, and I, I was sitting there watching the game, and I said it probably ten times before the Patriots even came back. The difference in this game is two turnovers. You know, so they were dominating the game, but no matter how much you're dominating the game, when you get into that deep of a hole, to be able to dig yourself out is very impressive. You know, to rattle off 31 straight points in a quarter and a half, that is, that's impressive. That's very, very impressive. Uh, so, you know, hats off to them. Congratulations to them. That's a hell of a way to win a game. No matter how well you're playing overall, you're yeah. still down 28-3. So, 
It, it was definitely a good game, and you did it without Gronk. You 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 rattled that off without a Gronk. So yeah. so I, I I I was definitely impressed. Um, if anything, in my eyes, I think it's cemented. Like I kind of want to own the the Blu-ray of that game because, like, I bet that's going to get a lot of buys on the Blu-ray just because of of how incredibly amazing of a comeback that was. Yeah, absolutely. While Tom Brady was getting. His not that he was not getting the best from his players, and he, like you said, he didn't have Gronk. I mean, they had five or six drops, I think, or something like that in the first three quarters. So, yeah, man, they were dropping. Edelman was dropping passes, yeah, characteristically. You know, Danny Amendola, thankfully, I mean. Is anyone happier than 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 Danny Amendola to get off the Rams from the Patriots? <laughs> he leaves like, the Rams, him, and him in five years him. he has two Super Bowls. <laughs> right, right, and now and, and now you got uh, Long too. You know, he leaves the Rams in one year and gets that Super Bowl. Like, yeah, thank God. <laughs> and you know, the one person you know who's the most pissed off? What Ram is the most pissed off right now? Benny Cunningham. Yeah. <laughs> as as he was the one other Ram who went and had a workout with them and somehow he left somehow he left and came back to the Rams. Right now he's probably looking like, what the hell? <laughs> lesson learned, Benny. <laughs> you know, le- lesson learned. You don't pick Jeff Fisher over Bill Belichick. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking that anyway, man. Like I wouldn't no. Yeah, it, it, it was I, it was I got nothing, man. There's not a single thing you could have done, like if I were Benny Cunningham and I were looking at a pros and cons list. There's not a single way that I would have ended up with the Rams over the Patriots, like like after I got done checking things off my list. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I agree. I, if I had to honestly say, I think it probably came down to dollars. You know, he was tagged. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was tagged with the unrestricted tender and. Um, that tender he was tagged was an original pick and it was free agent, so I think it was like one point one million or something like that. If anything, I'm willing to bet it probably was the Patriots not matching it. It probably was like they offered him a minimum of like nine hundred thousand. You know, that's that's just my guess. That's not like officially no. out there because you know no, the Patriots that, that never put their business sense. out there. But that would be my guess. But I'm pretty sure Benny Cunningham is still like what the hell, <laughs> you know. But I am definitely happy for Chris Long. Um, Happy to yep. see him have that have that success. And, you know, Danny Amendola, he left, what, four seasons ago? He's 50%. <laughs> he, he, he has a ring in 50% of his season since leaving. So I think he's a, he's a pretty happy camper as well. So, hey, hats off to those guys. I definitely, definitely enjoy um, both when both Chris Long and Danny Amendola was here. So I'm happy to see them have some success. Indeed. And we are happy to finally say that we have come to an end of things to talk about here today on Trip Show Radio. We will be back next week with an all-new show. Next week, my man Myson is going to be pumped, ready, and probably on time because we are going to be talking with Matt Waldman of Rookie Scouting Portfolio Matt Waldman is going to be 
going through and uh, looking at skill positions for the upcoming NFL draft. So we will talk to him about potential receiving targets as well as what he thinks guys that the Rams drafted last year can provide to this offense moving forward. So um, we'll get some more answers out of guys like Tyler Higby, Nelson Spruce, Farrow Cooper, etc. So uh, for my man, Myson, uh, actually, Myson, what do you got coming up on the site? You know, I um, just dropped off my um, big, board. big board, and Can now, I, now, no, no, now it's time to really dive into some of my favorite type articles, like scouting reports and sleeper prospects. Uh, right uh, now, I'm finishing up the sleeper prospects. Uh, sleeper prospects is probably my favorite thing to do each off season, because just finding those guys and then kind of watching them, you know. Those are the guys that you probably watch the closest of like where who's who's going to be that steal. You know, there's some really, really, really good, good guys that uh, I think have a lot of potential to be steals in this draft. Usually you can find like five or six per draft. And then, you know, of course, there's guys that just kind of come out of nowhere. But pre-draft, you find like five or six. This year, I'm looking at probably like 13 guys. And it's just like, wow, I've never seen this many guys who's who's not being talked about kind of going under the radar. Guys that's going to be like fourth round picks. And it's like these guys are really, really good players, though. So I'm definitely looking forward to uh, dropping that, which will be here pretty soon. Um, just kind of finishing it up and doing a few tweaks because I can't stop watching certain films, <laughs> you know, so still tweaking some things, but that's going to be dropping pretty soon here. And then scouting reports are scouting reports are going to be starting to start coming out pretty soon. Um, it's that time. <laughs> it's that time where everything just kind of starts rolling. So it's definitely a lot going on for me um, just over the next uh, two months. And of course, after free agency, that's when I'll start doing uh, mock drafts. Cause like I said, I, I found it to be moot to do it before free agency. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when ha- when most positions get filled in free agency, you know you're you're mocking, uh, you know something that doesn't need to be mocked. So, uh, yeah, yep. it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a pretty busy next couple of weeks for me. And as for me, I'm just gonna be doing your your average aggregate news and the podcast here. We will be back next week with a special podcast, a draft special with Matt Waldman. You're not going to want to miss that. And if you like what we do here, please uh, share it with the Ramily. Share it with your friends. Uh, The guests are only going to get better. And with your help, the podcast can continue to grow. we got some decent numbers, but we like to do a little bit better. So please Kick us along to your friends. And my son and I got you covered until about August when Joe comes back. So if you haven't already, be sure to give a follow to our producer, Scott Johnston. You can find him on Twitter at Sports Speaks, like talks, he speaks, she speaks. Scott's an awesome guy. And though he is a 49ers fan, the one thing he loves is Grape State Sports, man. That is his true passion. He loves to talk just about every team in California and has some interesting ideas, no matter how insane they are, L.A. charging Rams. But uh, we love Scott nonetheless, and I couldn't ask for a better friend to help produce this podcast, so please do give him a follow. And with that, we will catch you next time here on Turf Show Radio.
Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play, brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories, like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0, or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.